Hebrews 13, verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. You may be seated. Two big words for you. Leadership. Authority. What comes to your mind when I say those two words? The government. Okay. Leadership and authority. Particularly in relation to the church, right? Leadership and authority. What comes to your mind? Kind of rhetorical. I mean, you don't have to say it out loud if you want to. What's the first things that come to mind? Pastor? Think a few attitudes you might have. Nah, I'm on my own. Nobody's telling me what to do. I'll lead myself, thank you very much. I'll be my own authority. Or, I've been seriously hurt by church authority in the past. I had a pastor who abused me, so it's hard for me to trust church authority. Or, I had a good pastor. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was a faithful man. He loved our family well, he preached the word well, he shepherded us, and I'm thankful to God for him. And for you today, sitting in the pews, I'm sure all of us have an amalgamation of all those thoughts, right? some confusion, some skepticism, some gratitude for good authority that you've been blessed with in your life. But no matter what you may think about authority, the reality is this, God has given and created authority and has given church leadership authority for the good of the church. Okay? State it slightly differently. Authority in and of itself is not a bad thing. Okay? We serve the ultimate authority, God himself. Okay? Leadership is not a bad thing in and of itself. Leadership is a gift from God given to the church for the good of the church. But we have to frankly admit Since the fall, since Genesis chapter 3, leadership and authority have too easily and too often been abused. As one pastor has put it, power apart from God's purposes is always demonic. But nonetheless, on the flip side, godly, biblical, humble, loving leadership exercised in a God-fearing way is a beautiful gift to the church to be celebrated, to be received, and a discipline to be practiced. So today, we're wrapping up our time focusing on the doctrine of the church. What is the church? What, who is the church? What is the purpose of the church? Today, we're asking and looking at the simple question of how should the church be ordered? How should the church be ordered? In terms of leadership in particular, what is the leadership pattern that is revealed in the New Testament? What are the qualifications, the responsibilities of those in leadership? What does God's word say about leadership? Now, before we dive into that, um, why are we talking about this in the first place, right? So, yes, we're going through the Baptist faith and message. Why is that? Just simply to wrestle our heads around, what are some basic doctrines that we need to be clear about in this local congregation? And if you recall, about a month ago or so, when we had the um, baptism service. <clears throat> there, 
I explained what's known as theological triage, if you might recall. Okay, so kind of three tiers of theology or doctrine. On the top tier, we've got uh, the resurrection, the trinity, the exclusivity of Christ, doctrines that we cannot disagree on. There has to be unity in them, and they all have to be consistent for it to be true biblical Christianity. Okay, top tier doctrines. Below that are what's known as second tier doctrines. These are doctrines that a local church has to have unison on, has to have agreement upon, but that nonetheless, different churches can legitimately disagree upon. Okay, two of the big ones that come to mind are baptism, which talked about that a, a month ago, but then also the role of women in leadership. Okay, are these important issues? Absolutely. We need to see what, what does God's word say about these issues. But legitimate Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians, I believe, can disagree on those things, right? We can have legitimate fellowship with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who may affirm infant baptism, okay? And then below that, the third tier is what's known as, well, well, third tier, right? Things that are important, but there can be disagreement on even in a local church. Primarily, the main thing that comes to my mind is that concerning the end times. Now, yes, we all have to agree Jesus is coming back physically, bodily, but in terms of the precise timetable as to how that unfolds, I think there can be legitimate disagreement, humble disagreement, even in a local church body. Okay? So today we're looking at that second thing. How should a church be ordered? What does church leadership look like in a local church? And it's quite simple. There's two offices, okay? The scripture makes it clear there's two offices in the, in the church that are to be recognized. The office of pastor and the office of deacon, okay? It's a two-point sermon, but there's a lot of subpoints to them. But what is a pastor? What is a deacon? Who can be a pastor? Who can be a deacon? Those are the main questions to wrestle through. Lastly, last kind of prefatory comment. This is relevant for you in a few different dimensions, Okay? This is in an order of importance. Number one, these instructions in the New Testament were given to the church. Okay, so we're, we're going to be looking at Titus and Timothy a little bit. And both of those are known as pastoral epistles. Okay, so Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a pastor. So you might be tempted to think, well, since I'm not a pastor, therefore I don't need to read it. Okay, similar type of thinking when it comes to 1 Corinthians. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7 Paul addresses the topic of singleness and marriage, but especially singleness there, okay? You might think, well, I'm not single, so that passage doesn't have anything to do with me. No, that passage was written and intended to be read to the entirety of the church, okay? So you might not be a pastor, you might not be a deacon, but these words are meant for you to hear. Why is that? A couple of reasons. One, and why I'm bringing it up today, the Lord may in fact be, may be calling some of you to be a pastor or to be a deacon. You may not have that desire right now, and that's okay, right? Desires change over time, but maybe, just maybe, the Lord is calling some of you to serve as either a pastor or a deacon, okay? So just keep that in mind. So, so therefore, if you might be serving as one in the future, what does God's word say about these? Another reason, frankly, is so that you might be praying for those who are serving as pastors and deacons, right? As, again, just self-reflectively, this is kind of an awkward topic for me to, you know, preach about, you know, the topic of leadership, because I'm the leader up here. I'm talking about kind of my job description. It's kind of awkward. 
What's the point? One of the points, please be praying for me. Pray for others who are serving in church leadership. Pray that they might live godly lives, that they might fulfill the duties that God has called them to fulfill. And so those are, you know, a few reasons why this is relevant for you today as somebody who's sitting in the pew. So let's look at each of those in turn. Number one, what is a pastor? What is a pastor? Three terms in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament that are used of pastor. It is the word pastor or shepherd. Those are synonymous. The word bishop or overseer. Those are synonymous as well. And then the word elder. Okay? My understanding biblically and the Baptistic understanding and many other denominations believe that in the Bible, in the New Testament, those three words refer to the same office. Okay? So if, I, if you hear me use the word elder, I'm talking about a pastor. When you see in 1 Timothy 3, Paul using the language of overseer or bishop, he's talking about a pastor. That's fascinating to note that only once in the New Testament is pastor used in reference to the office of pastor. It's kind of fascinating. The verb is used in terms of you need to be pastoring. You ought to be shepherding God's people. We'll see a few of those verses in just a moment. But in Ephesians 4.11, that's the only reference to the pastor as an office. The more frequent title is elder or presbyterios. Okay? That's Presbyterian, that's where we get the word elder from. All right, so those are all synonymous, though, nonetheless. What is a pastor supposed to do? What is the role of a pastor? This is a very important question to ask. One, so you can be praying, but also what you can be expecting from pastors in general. What should pastors be doing? Number one, oversee or manage the affairs of the church. Oversee or manage the affairs of the church. First Timothy Chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says that there are elders who direct the affairs of the church. He says in context, it says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So simply put, what is the role of a pastor? In part, oversee, manage the affairs of the church. Titus chapter 1, verse 7, Paul likewise says there, an overseer or a pastor manages God's household, okay? Number two, what does a pastor do? Care for the flock. Care for the flock. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. First Peter 5, verses 1 to 3. This is a very central key text to remember. First Peter 5, 1 to 3. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. So explicitly, Peter is addressing, hey, pastors, listen up. These are your instructions. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Shepherd God's flock. Thirdly and finally, instruct in the word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. The, the, the short little command, preach the word. 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word. But also Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Titus 1, 9. As Paul say, he, who's he? 
a pastor, right, an overseer, a bishop. He, the pastor, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. But also, as we'll see in just a moment from Second Timothy, or sorry, from First Timothy 3, part of the qualifications for who an elder must be or a pastor, they have to be able to teach. Okay? So inherent within what a pastor does and is, is the component of prophetically communicating God's word. What does prophetically mean? I'm not necessarily talking about in the context of me looking up and saying, Lord, what's the new revelation you want me to share with your people? I'm not saying that. Prophetically meaning speaking God's word directly to God's people. Making it very, again, not making it, but conveying the relevance, the um, importance of it in a very tangible, immediate way. Okay? That's what prophecy is. Prophecy is in part the future. Okay? But more and more in the Old Testament and in the New, prophecy typically means forthtelling, preaching God's word to the modern day people, not just about what happens in the future. Okay? But regardless, that's what the responsibilities of a pastor are. If you forgot all of that, think about the simple imagery of shepherding. Okay? What is a pastor supposed to be doing? Think about the image of a shepherd. Of all things that a literal shepherd does, just think about it. If you've never seen one physically, just imagine what they would do. Okay? They feed the flock. They lead the sheep across valleys. They protect the sheep from wild animals. They tend to the sick and mend the injured. They chase after the strays, calling them back to the flock. But what's the underlying reason the shepherd does all of this? Have you thought about it? Why does a shepherd do all of this? It's not rocket science. Why does a shepherd do all these things? Let me hear, let me hear somebody say, why does a shepherd do all these things? Say it again. Prophet? Kind of. <laughs> okay. That's not what I'm going with. They're his? Oh, he cares? Say, what was that? The good of the flock. That, that's kind of what I was looking for. Okay. Why does the shepherd do it? To see that the sheep are healthy. Okay. To see that they're healthy. To see that they're full grown. But to also see that they'll reproduce. Okay. Now, in relation to earthly pastors, right, humans... It's not one-to-one correlation. Understand, it's an analogy. It's an illustration, but there's a lot of overlap. What is the role of a pastor? Feed the flock the truth of God's word, the bread of God's word. Walk with members through the valleys and the mountaintops. Warn God's people about false teaching, about going astray. Call back the stray and the people who were unengaged. Tend the hurting, the downtrodden, with the hope of God's promises. Why? Why do I stand up here week after week? Why did I take on the role of pastor in the first place? To see the flock of God healthy. To see the flock of God mature, built up, as Colossians 1 talks about. That's why Paul says he preaches, Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Okay, The maturity, the growth, the health of the sheep is vital. But keep in mind, It's also about reproducing. I preach the word so that you will internalize the word and that you will then go and share the word with others. Right? I strive by God's grace. It's a collective effort, but 
I strive to make disciples so that you can then go on and make disciples who will then go on and make disciples. That's the whole point of the church. Okay? Reproduction, multiplication, spreading the gospel out. That's the work of a pastor. Just think about the imagery of a shepherd if you're wondering what should a pastor be doing. So then, big question. Who can be a pastor? Who can serve as a pastor? Right? This is a big question, contentious one in today's world. The qualifications are found in two places. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, if you want to kind of flip-flop between them. But for the sake of time, I love what one pastor did. He distilled it, all of these qualifications down to six categories that encompass a lot of the specifics of what it means to be a pastor. Okay, So six qualifications of who can be a pastor and who ought to be one. Number one, this is from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This person must desire it. Okay, 1 Timothy 3, 1. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Simply put, there has to be some desire for it. They have to want it to a degree. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 3, we read that one earlier. Right, Peter says, Be shepherds of God's flock under your care, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Okay? There has to be willingness, a desire to actually do it. Not simply because oh, nobody else is doing it, so I'm going to have to step. Right? If, I'm not saying that can never happen. What I'm saying is, it's clear from Scripture, God wants there to be a desire. Number two, godly character. This is a big blanket statement, but it encompasses a whole lot. Again, but to keep it simple, number two, godly character. One of the frequent words used in 1 Timothy 3, both about elder and deacon, but also in Titus chapter 1, is the word blameless. He has to be worthy of respect, blameless. And when you hear the word blameless, please know, Paul and, and God are not talking about morally perfect, free from flaw, Okay? If that were the case, every single pastor would have to pack and go home, right? Because none of them exist apart from Jesus Christ. What does the word blameless mean? It means one who is faithfully striving to please the Lord. As one pastor described, being above reproach or being blameless means that an elder is to be the kind of man whom no one suspects of wrongdoing or immorality. People would be shocked to hear this kind of man charged with such acts. That's what it means to be blameless. Now, again, in terms of self-reflective me up here, part of the way that that's determined, or deciphered rather is a better word, is through the local body. Okay, I think it's wrong for anybody who is aspiring to be a pastor to say, you know what, regarding the blameless and worthy of respect and being above reproach, I meet that qualification. And, and you're kind of selling yourself that way. That's the role of the local church to collectively observe the life of a man and to you know, collectively say, hey, we vouch. Yeah, of course he's not a perfect man, but he is worthy of respect. He is being faithful to God's word. Okay? Number three, able to teach. Who can be an elder? Who can be a pastor? This person has to be able to teach. First Timothy 3.2. Now, the overseer or the pastor, again, they're all synonymous. The overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, 
temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and then right there, able to teach. There's a lot of overlap between elder and deacon in terms of qualification, right? So the whole being godly, being faithful to your family, being worthy of respect, being blameless, those are all overlap there. One of the only differing qualifications between elder and deacon, one of the things that sets them apart is that elders must be able to teach. Pastors must have that ability. And inherent within that, what am I trying to say? A pastor, part of the essential role of what a pastor does is communicating God's word verbally. Okay? Does that mean every pastor always needs to preach from the pulpit every single Sunday? I don't see that clearly in Scripture. Right? Maybe it just means being able to faithfully teach God's word, uh, instruct in God's word. But they do have to have the ability to teach. Number four, leads their family well. Who can be a pastor? It has to be someone who leads their family well. This is from 1 Timothy 3.4. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner with a full respect. And then Titus chapter 1, verse 6. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. In some pockets of the secular world, okay, think about your own job, secular world in general. It's possible in some contexts, some places, for there to be a divide between your work life and your personal life. Okay? What do I mean? In other words, if you show up here from 9 to 5, you knock out all the responsibilities that's required of you at the job, the boss might say, really, I don't care what you do on your own time. You can get drunk, you can go sleep around, you can do anything you want from all the time you're not in the office as long as you get the job done. Isn't that true? To a degree, aren't some, don't some people operate that way? Just from a cold, business, transactional type of manner. Yeah. In what, what am I trying to say? In God's economy, in God's household, in God's church, there is no room for that duplicity. Okay? The pastor has to be single-minded, one-minded. What he is in the home, he will be in the church. What he is to be in the church, he is to be in the home. Okay, there has to be unison, faithfulness in both contexts. You cannot separate a pastor's private life from his public persona or me, you know, publicly preaching. You cannot do that. You have to manage the family and the home well. You have to be faithful to the wife, right? All that that entails. And then that will be translated to the local church. Because as Paul explicitly makes it clear, 1 Timothy 3.5, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of of God's church. All right? That's number four. Number five. Here's a contentious one for you, but here's the, let me just drop the bomb for you. Who can be a pastor? It has to be a male. Okay? It has to be a man. The office of pastor. All right? The office or role of pastor, let me be precise here with the language, it is reserved for called, qualified men. Okay? God's design is for godly men to serve their families and serve the church by humbly pouring themselves out for the well-being of others. Okay, let me try to explain more. As God, as we see in Ephesians in particular and in Genesis 1 and 2, which Ephesians 5 is based off of, there we see God's call and design is for men to lead in parenting and in marriage 
but also in a similar way for godly men to lead in the church family. Now let me address a couple of things here. So are you saying, Pastor Jimmy D, that women are incompetent? Not in the slightest. Not in the slightest. This has nothing to do with ability or competence. It's only, the only thing I'm camping out and staking all of this on is on God's created order and design. Nothing to do with ability or competence. What about women leaders in the Bible? Okay. What about Deborah in the Old Testament, one of the prophetesses? A few things. Okay. That's a fair, legitimate question. A few things. The Lord absolutely used women in significant ways throughout the redemptive narrative. Okay, Think about a few of them. Esther, Ruth, Deborah, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Phoebe, a deaconess who we're going to look at in just a moment. But in leadership roles, okay, let me be clear, in leadership roles that involved continual prophetic communication of God's word, this isn't, I'm not tr- trying to say anything, this is just the reality. The normative pattern that God chose to work through is through the hands of men. Okay? Now, now let me say this. When it comes to Deborah, or think about 2024, modern day examples of women who might be serving as pastors. Think about, you know, one of the contexts people might bring up. What about sub-Saharan Africa, where there's no godly men, no qualified called men around? But there is a faithful woman who loves the Lord, who wants to see people grow up in the word of God, who wants to share the word of God with people. Are you saying that person, that woman, cannot be a pastor? Understand my heart. I'm not asking, what can God do? I'm not asking what's possible. But what I'm asking is, what is God's normative plan and design? This is very important for us to think about. What is the normative plan and design? Think about the issue of parenting just for a moment, okay? Is it possible? Imagine a child being raised in a single-parent home by a teenage Buddhist mother in gang-infested, drug-infested South Central Los Angeles. Is it possible for that child to grow up to become a Christian? Is it possible for that child to grow up to become an upright, sound a bright citizen of the country, but of a citizen of God's kingdom who serves the Lord faithfully. Is that possible? Is it possible for that child to grow up to become a pastor and lead a Bible-believing church? Yes. In fact, that is the testimony of Vody Balcom, one pastor I, I like to, I've benefited from listening to. But the simple question, is it possible? Of course, God can work through anything. But the question is, what is God's design for the home? Is that God's normative desire for the home? No, it's not. What's God's desire for the home? One man and one woman bound together, the holy matrimony of marriage, being equally yoked, right? Serving one another mutually, uh, selflessly, with grace, with humility, with love, with patience, raising up children, in the fear and admonition of the Lord, instructing them in the ways of God, instructing them in the word of God from the time they are born. That's God's design. It's the perfect design. Everybody falls short of living up to that perfectly, right? There are plenty of scenarios where that does not happen. The case of Odie Balcom. But brothers and sisters, my heart's desire is for us to ask, what is God's intended design? 
Okay? And I believe that the concerning right transition back to the church leadership role, I believe the Baptist faith and message sums it up succinctly. And I don't really want to say more than that at the moment. Because there's a, there's a, let me just read this for a second. The Baptist faith and message says, while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor or elder or overseer is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. A couple things there. Number one, understand what I said and what I didn't say. Just because you're a man does not mean you can be a pastor. That is not at all God's picture. Just because you're a man doesn't mean you can be a pastor. You have to be called and qualified for it. Okay? You might be called. There might be somebody called to the ministry, but they're not yet qualified yet. Maybe they've only become a Christian in the past three months, but they have this desire. They're aspiring for the ministry, but they're not yet fully mature yet. Okay? There also could be somebody who's qualified. There could be men who are godly, who are faithful, but they're not at all called to the ministry in terms of being a pastor. And that's okay. It's not for everyone. God's word is clear about that. It's only for called, qualified men. Now, church, why did I just spend so much issue on this? Okay, a couple things. One, I mentioned it earlier. Think about the theological triage. This is not the flashpoint of Christianity. Okay? This is not the most important doctrine in Christianity. Far from it. Is it important? Absolutely. Should we think about it? Should we wrestle through the text? What does God's word say? Absolutely. But I do believe there can be some wiggle room here in terms of what about the church down the street who has a lady pastor? Or what about my friend who I know who might be serving as a lady pastor? Right? All these different components. There's a whole lot of ways to apply this. My heart, okay, think about locally here at Hillsborough Baptist Church. The only thing that we can do as a church is see that we ourselves are well-ordered. My desire, I'm not, my passion in life, my passion in ministry, it's not to call out and correct all those people who might be doing that, or in similar fashion, for Presbyterian and Anglican brothers and sisters, my heart's passion is not to try to correct them on their understanding of baptism, okay? That's not my heart. Our heart needs to be, how can we as a local church, Hillsborough Baptist Church, be well-ordered? What does God's Word say? How can we submit to it together? There's that component, but also this. And this is a big one. This issue is being assaulted so heavily by Satan. And I'm not talking about the issue of pastor. I'm talking about the issue of gender. Okay? The issue of gender and sex in the Western culture is heavily being attacked by Satan. Because Satan, everything that God creates that's good, he always wants to twist it and pervert it and malign the good intention behind it. So when it comes to sex and gender, what does Satan want to do? He wants to sow confusion. He wants to erase any differences at all. He wants to erase all of that. Now, yes, are there similarities between men and women? Of course. But are there differences? Absolutely. Okay? Satan wants to blur that whole picture. Say, if you can be a man, you can be a woman, you can be a woman. So on and so forth. Okay? In my heart, we as a church, we need to be clear and contend for God's good design of gender, beginning with Genesis 1 and 2. Right? It's much bigger. It's not just about right, the whole pastor thing. That's part of it. It's about what is God's design for gender? What is God's design for sex, for the sex is, for man and woman, for male and female? What's God's design for it? Because as we submit to his design, that's when we best flourish.
right? As one pastor said, I don't write the mail. I'm just called to deliver it, okay? And if you have questions about this, I'm more than happy to talk about it. There's a myriad of ways of how does this apply? How does this work out uh, practically? And I'm still wrestling through it. I still need your voice to, to figure out how do we, we apply that and faithfully live that out as a church. For example, back in Lynchburg, where uh, my wife and I, we were members at, you know, they were maybe not as infant of a stage as maybe I am or we are here, but they, they were wrestling through this whole topic, women in leadership. Where's the line? How, how can we honor women? How can we include women? And, you know, they were wrestling with the topic of can, can women share, let's say, at a Wednesday night gathering. So it's not the Sunday morning thing, but it's a Wednesday night gathering of, of both men and women. It's not the, the technical official Sunday morning service, but could a woman share there in front? They were wrestling through that, right? How do you practically live this out? A lot of questions to answer. I simply say, the office of pastor is reserved for called qualified men. But then the last one, number six, okay? Number six, who can be a pastor? An established believer. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. So simply, has to be somebody who's established in the faith. How established? God's word doesn't say. That's where the role of the local church comes in, okay? Does it have to be a year, two years, five years, ten years? How long do you have to be a Christian? All God's word says, can't be a recent convert. It's to be applied and worked out through conversation, through wisdom. Okay, number two. That's what a pastor is. What is a pastor supposed to do? Who can be a pastor? Number two, the second office of the church, the office of deacon. The Greek word is, is diakonos. Diakonos. What does that word mean? Simply means servant. Okay? A deacon is simply one who serves. So in a sense, every single Christian is called to deacon as a verb. Okay? Every single Christian is called to serve. Absolutely. But scripture in Philippians 1.1 highlights that there is an office, a formal set-apart office of deacon. Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Let me just say this one right out the, at the outset. No church can survive without the faithful service of deacons, okay? This is, no church can survive without the faithful role of deacons. Deacons are so vital to seeing that the, everything about the church functions and that it just runs smoothly, that it's served well. But get to that in a moment. What, what does a deacon do? What are they supposed to do? Acts chapter 6 gives us a nice picture of how deacons functioned. But for the sake of time... I love what one, um, what one person said. What is a deacon supposed to do? Kind of like a one-sentence summary. Deacons are model servants appointed to a local church office. They are deployed to assist the pastors or the elders by protecting church unity, organizing practical service, and meeting tangible needs. There are myriads of ways of how this can be fleshed out. For example, if somebody is good at... Um, caring for the grounds of a church, okay? Mowing, pulling up weeds, all that kind of stuff. Hasn't a good eye for that. Can that person serve as a deacon? 
I'm asking you, can, can that person serve as a deacon? Deacon of the property. Okay. What about somebody who's good at finances or managing budget, budgets? Can that person serve as a deacon of finance, respectively? Well, yes and no. I didn't say anything. What, what, what did I leave out? I did not speak about, are they godly? Okay. It's kind of a trick question there, right? So, yes, those people, yeah, they can serve deacon of finance, deacon of grounds, sure. But what does God's word say? Who can be a deacon? Are they worthy of respect? Are they godly? Are they faithful to their families? Do they hold, as um, 1 Timothy 3.10 says, do the deacons hold to the deep truths of the faith? Again, they don't have to have all this head knowledge of the Bible, but do they believe in the Bible? These people can serve as deacons in the context in which they are um, gifted in, in terms of service. Character matters. This is important. The New Testament spends more time, hear me out here, the New Testament spends more time outlining qualifications of a deacon rather than their responsibilities. Okay, so it's more important who a deacon is than what a deacon does. You can't always divest the two or split the two. Something to consider. Now, here's also a controversial opinion in some circles. I personally believe that from Scripture that women can serve as deacons. Why do I say that? Three main reasons for now. First Timothy 3, if you want to look there. First Timothy 3. So First Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7. Paul is addressing the role of pastor, the office of pastor, who can be the pastor, uh, who can serve in that role? Verse 8, 1 Timothy 3.8, he transitions to addressing deacons, qualifications of deacons. So there, in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Right here, verse 11, very key verse here. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A couple things here. The Greek word there, you might see it in your Bible in, um, with a footnote. The Greek word there for women, it's a word that could be either women or wives. It's kind of, it could go either way depending on context. But what's the context then? So in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect. Right there, Paul does not use a possessive pronoun. This is a possessive pronoun. What's the baby's favorite phrase? Mine. Okay, mine, mine, mine. Possessive pronoun means ownership or, you know, ownership, I guess, is the best word. Paul does not say, in the same way, they're women. Or in the same way, they're wives. So in context, he's not saying, in the same way, the deacon's wives are to be worthy of respect. He doesn't use that phrase. It's, it's just a generic article. The, in, in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect. Okay? So th- there's an omission there. Number two, when Paul talks about qualifications of an elder, both here in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, Paul does not bring up the conduct of pastor's wives. Okay? So wouldn't it make sense that if he was talking about deacon's wives here, Shouldn't have it been included to address pastor's wives in the prior section? 
I think it should have. Okay? So that's one thing to consider. And then thirdly and finally, the role of Phoebe in uh, the book of Romans 16.1. Here's Phoebe. She's a faithful servant of the church in Kincrea or Sintri, however you may pronounce that one. Verse, uh, Romans 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sintri or Kincrea. Deaconess of the church in Sintri, Kincrea. Okay. Again, if you have more questions about that, I'm more than happy to, to talk about that. But I think it's, it's a biblical warrant that women can serve and ought to serve as deacons. I mean, again, be frank. Think about your own experience in the church and the church throughout all the centuries. The church would not exist without the faithful support of women serving the church. Christ loves to work through the hands and feet of women. Okay? He uses them in powerful ways. Think about your own, right? My grandmother was a powerful woman. She loved the Lord. How many of us have a faithful grandmother that served the Lord, right? That's what I'm talking about. So the church needs godly, God-fearing women. So in summary, deacons, who are they? Deacons are a cavalry of servants, deputized to execute the pastor's vision by coordinating various ministries. They are like a congregation's special ops force, carrying out unseen assignments with fortitude and joy. That any healthy, good local church needs pastors and deacons. Okay? Both and. So, brothers and sisters, let me wrap it up. My desire is for Hillsborough Baptist Church is for it to be a church that is ruled by Jesus Christ, governed by its members, for we are congregational, we are democratic in that sense, led by its pastors or elders, and served by its deacons. Church leadership is a good gift from God for the good of the church. As one pastor says about authority in general, a world without authority would be like desires with no restraints, a car with no controls, an intersection with no traffic lights, a game with no rules, a home with no parents, a world without God. It could go on for a little while, but before long, it would seem pointless, then cruel, and finally tragic. Authority is good, it's needed, but it ought to be exercised biblically in a God-fearing, God-honoring, humble, loving way. And when it is done so, and where we began, that opening verse in Hebrews 13, 17, for a godly leader, when somebody is ruling in godliness and love, in Christ-likeness, the command to submit, what a joy it is. That's God's design, okay? Submission is a good thing in God's design. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Any healthy church needs healthy leaders and healthy servants. Healthy leadership, healthy submission all around. We're a broken church. We're not going to do it perfectly here at Hillsboro. But by God's grace and by God's power, I want us to do our absolute best 
to do that. Amen to that? Amen. All right, in, in conclusion then, if you want to go to the next slide, I want to just go over what, is, what does the BFNM say about the church since we've been going over it for, for four weeks. So if you will, this is, um, read this out loud with me to see what the BFNM says. A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Its two scriptural offices are that of pastor, elder, overseer, and deacon. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor, elder, overseer is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. The New Testament speaks also of the church as the body of Christ, which includes all of the redeemed of all the ages, believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Let's pray and then we'll close with the doxology. Father, for all of us in here, please help us to look to you as our chief shepherd, the one who truly watches over our souls. May we delight in your sovereign care over us. May we delight in the leadership that you show us. May we emulate you by the power of your spirit. May we follow after your patterning, your the way that you do it. May we follow after what your word says. And in this very, 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 very messy work of church, because we're not only where two or three are gathered, are you there? Where two or three are gathered, there is undoubtedly conflict in some way, shape, or form. As we as broken people strive to live out your word, as we strive to gather together, to be a local church body, will you please help us to interact, to serve one another with love, with humility, with grace, for that is how you treat us. Help us to be patient with those who may disagree. Help us to be loving and forgiving to those who may hurt us. Help us to look to you for wisdom through it all. Thank you, Jesus, that you never give up on us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.